When you got up this morning, you, between the, the time that you did and the time that you are sitting here th- this morning, you, you made a lot of decisions. You made decisions about what to put on uh, today. Might have been two or three decisions if it was one of those mornings where you have nothing to wear, right? But you, you chose a shirt and pants or skirt or whatever, and one thing went with the, with the other. You, you probably glanced in the mirror to see how it looked, or some of you guys should have. And you, you do these things, though, because you care. You care about, you care about how you look. Uh, you, you don't want to come to church looking out of place. You don't want to have something that clashes or whatever you, you, you might think of from as far as, a, as dress is concerned. And of course, there are no stated dress code at, at Timberlake, but there are cultural norms that, that keep you from being a distraction. I mean, you know well enough that you... You dress up whenever you go to a wedding or to a funeral, and you, you don't wear your pajamas to a nice restaurant. And, and the Apostle Paul is kind of using this same concept that, uh, in order to, to help us understand spiritual dress. And in Colossians 3, he said, in a similar way, we must adorn ourselves in a, a certain lifestyle. Um, and it's a choice that, that you're making, something that you're pursuing. You're, you're to do that not with cultural norms, but what is natural for those who, who name the, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to, we're to put off the crooked deeds and corrupt desires from before Christ, and we must put on the, the virtues of our Savior, having come to, to know Him. And, and when we don't do that, our, our attire doesn't match the setting. We claim to be Christians, and yet, yet what adorns our lives doesn't, doesn't match. And, and we're also a distraction to the gospel, the gospel that says it, it changes you. You now have a new master, and, and you, you are a follower of, of another, being, be, being God. And we're taking our time through this passage because it's really tires to the pavement level of, of Christianity. I mean... This list of virtues that, that we've now come to is, is what we're to pursue every day. This is, this is not a, a one-time thing where you put it on. Every day you make choices to, to emulate these, the, these things. It's also a list that if you attempt to, 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 to put this on in your life, if you attempt to have compassion, you attempt to have gentleness or humility or, or patience, without regeneration, without being a genuine believer, you're going to you're going to hit a wall pretty quickly. You're going to realize that, that this is impossible for you to do apart from the Spirit of God, and you're going to, need, you're going to see that you, you need a new heart. And we're looking at this in a, in, as an excursus from, from Romans 6. It's a parallel passage that helps us apply the theology of Romans 6, which was all about our glorious union with, with Christ. We've died with Him. We've been raised to to live a new life. What does that new life look like? We got our marching orders from Romans 6. We are to, we're to not, no longer yield our members, yield ourselves to sin and unrighteousness, but we're to yield ourselves to, to, to God. And so Colossians 3 is showing us how that works out every day through this, through this principle of biblical replacement. The conduct and cravings of what you were must be mortified, put off like a dirty shirt, these old habits, the old habits of the old life are like landmines left buried by an army that has been defeated. 
And now the victorious army is coming into the, into the country, and they must deal with them. While those landmines can't reverse the outcome of the war, they, they can maim the soldier. And in the same way, sin now can't change your union with Christ or your salvation. You're eternally secure in Him. But it can affect your usefulness and your joy. And many believers fall into sin because they're, they're, they're careless. They, they just get too close to things that they should be very far away, one, uh, far away from. They're like the Corinthian Christian that takes the road beside the temple every day uh, to work and then laments to God in the evenings about why he keeps looking at the temple prostitutes whenever he, when he walks by. I mean, don't wonder why you lust if you spend an hour on YouTube surfing whenever you've fallen there before. I mean, those are the types of things that need to be put aside and not played around with. And you know that, but, but, but there's, a, there, there's another level besides knowing I'm not to lust. There's another level where, where you actually make choices and decisions that, that keep you from, from going there, falling into, in, into that trap. But beyond the putting off, which Paul's already talked about, shown us, Colossians 3, 12-14 is telling us, we're to dress ourselves anew. And in the same way, we, we know what God asks of us, what we should be like, but, but now we're, we're looking at the, the, the next layer of steps. What are the choices? What are the things that I have to do to understand in order to put this into, into practice? So, so we're looking at Colossians verses 3, verses 12 through 14. One commentator said, if you fail at these virtues, then you'll find yourself falling for those vices that, that are there. And we're calling it four seams of a believer's Christ-like garment. Uh, there's a reminder of our special position in verse 12. There's a command to adorn yourselves with a, with a specific a pattern, these five virtues that we'll start looking at today. Then there's a call to selfless practice, forbearing and forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. And then there's a perfecting bond, a bond of love. Above all these things, put on love, which kind of holds it, holds it all together and We've seen the, the first one. There's a reminder of our special position. Verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Paul gives three motivations before he ever tells you what to, what to do. He reminds you of, of who you are now that you're, you're in Christ. The, the elect, the holy, the, the beloved. All of those are monikers that God uses for Israel in the Old Testament. And if we understand that special position, then that we have before God, then, then we'll adorn ourselves with this, this special pattern, this specific pattern. That's the second seam. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness. These are contrasting virtues to the vices and their Christ-like attributes. So as the special people of God were to put on His likeness. Well, what's He like? Well, here's what he's like. There are five virtues that describe the, the Lord. And we said last week that one of the reasons that Paul chooses this list is they're parallel to those things we're to put off, but they're exactly how God is described in the Bible. So they're parallel to anger, wrath, and malice. Anger, wrath, and malice are to be replaced with compassion and kindness. Slander and abusive speech and lying is to be submitted or substituted, I should say, with humility and, and gentleness. Social prejudices that come from our, our differences are to be exchanged for patience or for bearing one another. 
And Paul chooses this list because it specifically describes Christ. What, what does it mean to put on Christ? Well, well, here's what he's like. Jesus has a heart of compassion. He's humble. He's kind. He's gentle. He's patient. And this is how God describes himself in the Old and New Testament. We saw that in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then Jesus echoes that same description of himself in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm lowly. You'll find rest for your souls. That's what God is like. Of course, he's like other things as well. But this is what the Lord leads with. This is, this is his first foot forward. And Christians are to become like him by emulating these, these five qualities. And so in verse 12b, Paul lists these five things. We're to put on heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. But the first thing on the list here sets the context for, for what, what, what follows. I want you to notice that these virtues are a combination of affections and, and actions, expressions. They start from within, and then they express themselves toward, toward objects, toward things that, that move us. They, the, this list involves both our emotions and also an exercise of our wills. And Paul uses two words for, uh, for this, this, this very first one at the, at the headwaters of, of, the, of, of these virtues to set the stage. He says we're to have a heart of, of compassion. The word for heart is, is literally your, your, your intestines. You're to have, you're, you're to, you're to have a, a, compassion, a compassionate mercy that, that comes from, from within. And you put those two words together, and it defines where these affections come from. It, it comes from your bowels. It comes from deep down inside of you. And then the second word, compassion, identifies the virtue that we're to, that we're to put on. As Christ followers, we're to put on a compassionate heart. We're to have bowels of mercy, as the authorized version says. A heartfelt compassion. You, you see how these two things are, are, are combined in this in this one concept. But that immediately thrusts us into something inward. I mean, the first word turns us, turns us deep down inside. Not just something that we do, but, but our actions. And it takes us into the realm of our affections, or, or you might say our emotions, or, or feelings, which obviously requires some biblical explanation because our culture is, 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 is wrecked whenever it comes with these, these two terms. And God's commanding these things to us here. He's commanding us to have these affections or these emotions or these, these feelings, which requires some, some explanation. It was believed in, the, in Near Eastern culture that your affections had their, their seat in, in your bowels, in your inward parts. Um, that makes perfect sense whenever you think about it. We, we still have a hangover from that. We... We say things, uh, uh, often say what, what we feel comes from deep within. We use terms like, it was just a gut. I had a gut feeling. That's what, where that comes from. Or we would say, we just speak from the heart. 
Um, and, and when we understand that, we're not saying that we're speaking from this literal muscle in us that pumps blood, that that's where our feelings come from. But what we mean is deep down, down inside, not something just physical, but, but something that, that's, that's spiritual, something that's emotional, something that's, that, that's, that's more inward. And this first word that Paul uses here refers to the headquarters of what we feel deeply. We, we're to have compassion at the gut level. We, we're to have a, a heartfelt sense of care, and we're commanded to put that on now. And you may hear that, and you think, how can God command me to feel something? I, mean, I can understand how God can tell me, do this and don't do that, but, but how can God command my affections? I mean, how can he tell me I must have certain, certain feelings, like, like heartfelt compassion, and even say that if I don't, I'm, I'm sinning? I'll use both terms. I actually like the word affection, again, because our culture has so mangled the concept of emotion or, or, or feeling. And not to get too far in the weeds, but I think this is important. Uh, there are actually two views about where emotions come from, affections come from. One uh, engages the mind, and the other one doesn't. There's the evolutionary view that says feelings are, are simply impulse-based. They're, they're not cognitive, uh, meaning they're not directly related to our thinking or our minds. They're, they're like an impulse. Emotions just, just kind of happen because of our bodies. Uh, we can't control them. They're, 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 they're things that come and go. They're based on something that stimulates us. So, so fear is, is what we feel when our bodies sense a threat. You've probably heard of fight or flight. That produces something, something in you. That's the view that, that says we're subject to our emotions. And we're not ultimately responsible for, for, for how we feel. Our, our current society would, would even say that they're trustworthy guides. In many cases, even more trustworthy than your rational thoughts. You can't trust your thoughts. You have to trust your gut. Trust your intuition. That's what society would say. So society says feelings are authentic. They're like your intuition. They're the purest part of, of you. Feelings are like some pure source of your, of your instincts, not tainted by, by your thinking or anyone else's thinking. And the carnage of logic that you see playing out all around you is the result of that, of that, that way of, of governing things. How I feel about things is what, 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 what is true, whether that's my sexuality or my gender or now even my race. If I feel like a certain gender, then, then reality is defined by that, by that feeling. And if you've ever followed that way of life, letting your feelings drive you, putting them at the front of the, of the train rather than, rather than your mind and renewed by God's word, then you know very well where that leads, in the ditch and a pile of additional feelings like sadness and despair and confusing from the mess that was, that, that was made. I mean, what your mother once told you is still true. God gave you a brain, so you should use it. The problem is our brains are messed up because of the fall, so they have to be renewed by, by, by the word of God. God tells us what to think well as what to do. And now here you have a passage where God actually tells us what we should feel. The affections that, that are righteous, the affections that, that are good. 
And when you look at Scripture, you will find God saying certain emotions, certain affections, attractions for certain things. The responses deep down within inside, some of those are good and righteous and holy, and some of those are evil and, and wrong and perverted and part of the, the fall. Your, your emotions are, are, are not a, a stream of uncorrupted accuracy. They reflect your inner man, your heart, your, your soul, and your mind. So the other view is, is biblical. It used to be the norm. It says that your feelings, your, your affections, your emotions come from within, but they're, but they're cognitive. Your, your brain is involved. They're, they're responses, meaning that they're a byproduct of, of, our, of our reason in some way. Again, they reflect what's going on inside of you, your, your heart, your, your soul, and in your mind, and and, and, and there's, a, there's a mysterious part of that. I mean, you, you have a, an organic part of you, a physical part of you, flesh and blood, and then you have an immaterial part of you, which the Bible describes as your heart, and your, your soul, and your spirit, and your, your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's all in there. Well, where does one start, and where does the other one stop? I think the easiest way is just, just come back to... You have a, a, a material part of you, an organic part of you, and then that, an immaterial part. And that immaterial part is, is where God's image is, is born. And your feelings and your emotions reflect that, that, that immaterial part of you. They're a fruit, though, of your, of your thinking and your perception. They're not simply a biological re reaction. For example, your conscience is that God-given mechanism that either accuses you or excuses you based on what it perceives is right or wrong. It's that little voice in, inside of your head. It's not God's voice, but it's something you were created with in that immaterial part of you. you the law of God was written on your heart, and, and your conscience can be instructed rightly or wrongly. It can be wound too tight. It can be, it can be too loose, but, but it's in there holding court based on what it perceives to be right or wrong. Or, or wrong. It holds court in your, in your mind, and the verdict of your conscience brings feelings and emotions. So see, the, there's something happening within you. You feel, you have emotions, but, but it engages your, your mind, in this case, your, your conscience. If your conscience evaluates something that you have done is right, or it's pleasing to God, the feelings of joy and, and peace may, may result. And if your conscience condemns you, you feel guilt, fear. It's a powerful gift from the Lord, which, you, which is why you should never train yourself to violate your conscience or weaken its sensibilities. Instruct it properly. It may go off. It may be hyper, maybe weak. But the Bible would say instruct it. Don't, don't, don't sear it. Don't, don't kill it. My point is that feelings follow, and, and, and they involve a perception or engaged mind. They, they come from within, and and they involve a number of faculties. They're not just something that we're subject to. The reason you can't follow your heart or your feelings is they've been corrupted by the, by the fall. If, if emotions are a reflection of my heart, then we need to remember the Bible says our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And you probably have heard how this plays out. The husband comes for counseling, but the wife is left, the wife comes for counseling, the husband is left, and the husband says, I just don't love her anymore. I just don't feel for her anymore, what I used to feel. Therefore, I'm going to go make these kinds of decisions. I have to follow my heart. 
you know, I've given so much of my life to my, to my family and my children, and I've just sacrificed for them. Now I want to live for me, and I just feel that that's right deep down with, with, within. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But you're feeling these things. These things are coming, flew off the handle. It's the other way around. Uh, we're to model his emotions. So you go to the scriptures. And God's emotions are holy expressions of who he is. But they're there. He's immutable. He's eternal. He's not moody and weak like the false gods uh, of the Old Testament. His emotions are perfect. Not dependent upon anything outside of himself. And our capacity for... For emotions and affections originate from him. Pre-fall, Adam and Eve, they were perfect as well. After the fall, they're corrupted. But now that we've been made a new creation in Christ Jesus, we're commanded to express them in Christ-like ways and to grow in that, that expression. And what's helpful here is Paul begins with a, with a clue of, of how we're, we're to express them with this list. He says biblical emotions spring up from within their heartfelt, and they imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. They're compassionate and kind and, and, and gentle. And that's how I would summarize these words. The seat of the, of the emotions have holy affections leaping toward a worthy object. And then they're expressed in Christ-like like ways, which means they're, they, they involve action in, in, in some ways, which, which brings us to the second word. Verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart, it's something coming within, from within, put on a heart of compassion. And there's the action part. The, the word means to have pity, to have mercy on, on, on someone. And again, you kind of have this amalgam, this mix of, of desire, affection, emotion, and then, and then expression of that toward, toward someone. It's a a genitive of quality, meaning compassion is the quality that, that's coming from the, should be coming from the, the heart. Words used 18 times, compassion, is used 18 times in the New Testament. 13 of the 18 are a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And compassion is a deep-seated concern. There's that inward part for others that, that comes from within. I mean, just like anger and wrath and malice are like a, a poisonous root in the, in the soul, compassion bubbles up from within the heart and as a response to, to, to what we see, a sanctified response. And by using these two words together, Paul, Paul's also saying that, that it includes some kind of action. It, it, it's not just, oh, I, I have such compassion for that person. I have such compassion for that person. <laughs> just leave it there. You're moved with compassion, but it's not complete. You're not obeying this list without an expression or an action. Compassion is what moved the Samaritan to bind up the wounds of the man he found alongside of the road. He had compassion on him. It's what moved the father in Luke 15 to embrace the prodigal son when he came home rather than giving him a, a tongue lashing or the cold shoulder. It's what moved the Lord Jesus Christ to teach whenever he saw the crowds like sheep without a, without a shepherd. Scott McKnight, in, in his commentary, said heartfelt compassion is comprised of three elements. There's a need. It's expressed. There's a response of mercy, of love toward that need from within. 
And then there's an action that alleviates it. So an object, a heartfelt response, and then, and then an action. And, and I think one of the best ways to understand the action part, how it's expressed, is, is to see an example of it. I mean, one writer said, I mean, you, you know these things whenever you see them and experience them, but it's kind of hard to explain. And I totally related to that. I mean, you know when someone's being compassionate toward you. You feel it. You sense it. But to describe what it means to be compassionate, to be compassionate without a tangible example is, is hard. Would you describe compassion to somebody? You probably describe examples. And we have plenty of those because the Lord's life is, is full of them. So, so what does this word mean? Well, Jesus had compassion for the woman whose, whose son died in Luke 7. It says, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and he touched the coffin. And the, the, the bearers came to a halt and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother. If you've ever experienced the death of a, of a loved one, the Lord felt compassion toward you whenever that, that happens and, and he still does. And he provides for you in that compassion, provides for you through the church, the bodies to care for you. They're, they're widows on, on the roll in, in the church. His spirit also fills the, the emptiness that, 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 that you feel, even when you, you, you lack understanding. Elizabeth Elliot, who recently went to be with the Lord a few years ago, widow to missionary Jim Elliot, said whenever Jim died, Talking about God, shall I charge him with a mistake in his measurements or with misjudging the sphere in which I can best learn to trust him? Has he misplaced me? Is he ignorant of things or people which in my view hinder my doing his will? The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. And we can only know that the eternal lover is wiser than we, and we bow in adoration of that loving wisdom. I mean, who can understand such a response from a woman who lost her husband? Well, you might begin to understand it whenever you hear her husband say, he is no fool who cannot keep his life to gain what he cannot lose, heaven. And then in his 30s, was murdered attempting to reach people for, for Christ. A Christian, this Christ's compassion, can understand that. The world sure can't. That's foreign love. That's, that's foreign things to, those are foreign things to, to the world. Jesus also had compassion on a, on a leper who was hopeless. Mark 1.40, a, a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, falling on his knees before him, saying, if you're willing, you, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, the Bible says. Here's the Lord, moved with compassion. Stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I'm willing, be cleansed. If you're facing sickness that seems incurable or you're experiencing the devastating effects of uh, of disease, the Lord has compassion on you. And I can tell you this morning without any question, He cares. 
and his heart leaps with mercy toward you in, in that suffering, just like with this, with this leper, the Lord is moved with compassion toward you. He may not heal you physically like he did the leper because the touch that he gave the leper was to, was to show that he was the Messiah when he was walking on the, the earth. But, but his compassion will sustain you in the midst of your, your suffering. And like the leper, he'll give you the opportunity to glorify him. We're still reading about that leper today. You think that leper cares that he had leprosy however long he had leprosy now that we're reading about him giving glory to Christ because of him in the Bible? Joni Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed from a broken neck as a teenager, said the pastor that helped her in the throes of that moment didn't cut any corners off of her predicament and didn't remove God's compassion from the tragedy. In her testimony, she said, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was fresh out of the hospital, barely out of my teens, sitting at our family table with my friend Steve Estes with our Bible and sodas, and we had become acquainted when he heard that I had tough questions about God and my broken neck. She said, my questions were in essence, I always thought God was good. And I said to him, but here I am a quadriplegic, sitting in a wheelchair, feeling more like his enemy than his child. Didn't he want to stop my accident? Could he have? Was he even there? Maybe the devil was there instead. She said, decades later, Steve would tell me that when I, when I sat across from you that night, Joni, I was sobered. This is what the pastor was saying. He said, I mean, I'd never met a person my age in a wheelchair. I knew, that the Bible, uh, I knew what the Bible said about your questions, and a dozen passages came to my mind from studying in the church. But sitting across from you, I realized I'd never test-driven those truths on such a difficult course. Nothing worse than a D in algebra had ever happened to me. But I looked at you and kept thinking, if the Bible can't work in this paralyzed girl's life, then it never was for, re for real. So he said, I cleared my throat and jumped off the cliff. And Joni said, then the pastor, this young man, said ten words that changed everything about my suffering. He said, Joni, God didn't push you off the ledge, but he let you break your neck. I don't know why. And if you'll trust him instead of fighting him, you'll find out why, if not in this life, but in the next. And then she said, he said the ten words. God permitted what he hated to accomplish what he loves. He permitted what he hated, your spinal cord injury, to accomplish what he loves, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But it doesn't stop with you, the pastor said. Just as Jesus had to suffer to reach a lost world, you too will learn to suffer for the sake of others. Joni said, it's been over 50 years since that summer that I spent many nights with Steve, and people are sometimes still mystified by the joy that I have, especially since I now deal with chronic pain. But that's okay. For when I hold fast to God's grace in my afflictions, the joy he gives tops everything. That's how my so-called hateful paralysis now makes me so happy, yet nowhere near as happy as I will be in heaven. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What would you have said to a teenage girl sitting there being in a wheelchair having those questions about about God? Like the pastor, what could you say other than what the Bible says? What a testimony. Where does that kind of, of thing come from? Well, she answered, it's Christ in you, the, the hope of glory. Jesus also had compassion on a, a hungry crowd who, who stayed to hear his teaching. Matthew uh, fifteen thirty two. Jesus called his disciples and said, I feel compassion for the people. Why? Here's the object, the people, the object. He, he felt it within because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. There's the worthy stimulus or the worthy impetus. And I don't want to send them away hungry. Here's the action. Well, they might faint on the way. The passage says, if you've ever given up anything for the Lord that you can't recover, he has compassion on you. And promises that are... Promises that whatever you you have given up, there's nothing that you've given up for him that, that won't be rewarded tenfold in heaven. Late missionary C.T. Studd was a famous cricket player and a wealthy man. He left his fortune and fame to follow Christ. He did his whole life. One of his last letters home, this is what he wrote. As I believe I am now nearing my departure from this world, I have but a few things to rejoice in. They are these. Number one, that God has called me to China and I went in spite of utmost opposition from all my loved ones. Two, that I joyfully acted as Christ told the rich young man to act. And three, that I deliberately at the call of God went alone on the the Bibby Liner in 1910 gave up my life for his work, which was to be henceforth, not for the sedan only, but for the whole unevangelized world. My only joys, therefore, are that when God has given me a work to do, I have not refused it. And whether it's C.T. Studd or you this morning in smaller ways, anyone who leaves something for Christ, the Lord has compassion on that loss. And he promises reward. Jesus had compassion on those who were wandering without clear teachings of Scripture. When Jesus went ashore, a large crowd, he felt compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began to teach them. If you've been in a church where there wasn't clear biblical teaching, the Lord has compassion on you if you're a genuine believer. He's led you where you can gain it again. But then probably the most well-known profound expression of the Lord's compassion is, is the parable of the prodigal son. See if you can find compassion in here. It's right up front. Luke 15. So he got up, this is the prodigal, and he came to his father. But, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, there's the object, and he felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your, your son. And 
But, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robes and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and has come to life again. He was lost. He has been found. And they began to celebrate. It's arguably one of the, the clearest pictures of the gospel within the gospels. God here is presented as the father with compassion on his guilty, sinful son. And you might look at those other examples, of, you know, where God has compassion on the sick person or the person where someone has died or the person who lacks physical food. And you might say, I understand how compassion what compassion looks like toward them. But, but how do I have compassion toward someone who has wronged me or someone who sinned against me? And here's the answer. I think this is the most greatest expression of the Lord's character of compassion in all that we've looked at. The compassion that the Father had here, the compassion is what caused the Father to see his son's sin in light of what his sin had done, in light of what the sin had done to his son, not what his son's sin had done to him. When you see someone sin against you, in light of what their sin's doing to them, and no longer what that sin did to you, that's compassion. That's compassion from the Lord. The father here saw his son's sin in light of how it had wrecked his life. The father wasn't thinking about how the son had sinned against him. When you do that, then you have this kind of compassion, and that will replace anger and bitterness and wrath, no matter what somebody's done to you. And that's how the Lord sees you this morning. If you're here and you're still in your sin, yes. Your sin has offended God. He's offended by your sin. Yes, his wrath is burning toward your rebellion, and unless it's quenched, it'll be poured out one day. Yes, your sin is wicked, and it is wrong, but God's compassion causes him to see your sin in light of what it's doing to you, not only what it has done to him. Because of that, he's moved to action. Do you notice in each of the story, the heart of compassion was followed by action. With the leper, he stretched forth his hand and cleansed. With the hungry crowd, he fed them, the shepherdless sheep, he taught them, the repentant prodigal, he forgave him. And so God's heart had compassion on you. When it did, it, it moved him. And it moved him from heaven to earth. The action was he came and died on the cross to take away that, that sin. And if you will repent and believe, then that he'll give you a new heart. He promises to make your, your body new one day. That's, that's a given. That's happening in heaven. But here, now, he'll, uh, he'll remake the immaterial part of you. Your spirit will become alive. You, you'll be able to renew your mind. You'll have a, a will that's now freed. And, and you'll have affections that can grow toward, toward the, like, the right thing. And you'll be able to show compassion toward others, like, like, like our master. James summarizes it clearly. 
He says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need and daily food and, or in need of forgiveness. And one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What, what use is it? Even so, faith, if it, is, if it has no works, is, is dead by itself. And as believers, we, we have a heart which has mercy on its seat now because the Lord is there. It's ready to spring forth and jump in affection when something worthy of compassion comes before it, and we're to put that on and then act when those opportunities come, as Galatians 6.10 tells us, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially the household of, of brethren. Those are proper and worthy responses of our, of our emotions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the, the gap between you, your example, and, and, and us can seem like the Grand Canyon. It can just seem so far. It's impossible to, to bridge. But that's not what you tell us in Scripture. Sanctification is a process. Changing these things is a process once you've begun it in, in salvation. But you will renew everything. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. And this morning, Lord, we, 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 we want to put on a, a heart of compassion. We want to be like you. Help us not to be stoic or emotionless. Help us to be stirred toward feeling things in our hearts, toward, toward, toward worthy objects. And then help us express it in, in action to become like, like you. One of the greatest ways, Lord, that you give us the opportunity to do that is, is toward other sin. Help us, Lord, to see other people's sin, whether it's our spouse or our children or our coworker or our boss or whoever, somebody on TV, help us to see their sin in light of what it's doing to them, not what it's done to us. And we'll be more like you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, take my life and let it be. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. encourage you to come back tonight uh, in here. We have family gathering, but this is also our uh, annual member meeting, if you will. So we'll vote tonight, affirming our budget. Um, and that will be in the beginning. That won't take maybe five minutes or, or so. Then the rest of the service, um, we're going to tell you about some changes that, that are going to come with, the, with service times and Sunday schools in, uh, in the fall in order to help accommodate some of our growth, growth in children's ministries, growth in here. Uh, growth's a wonderful thing, but it causes us to figure out how to respond to those and how we're going to deal with some of our parking issues and things like that. Uh, a month and a half or so from now, we're going to tell you about it tonight, so we encourage you to come back and, and, and hear that, okay? Father, we love you, and we pray you'll dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.